David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. Uh, we are carrying on uh, with uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, and uh, Sarah is going to read uh, the next installment, chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. Round of applause for Sarah. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. Thank you very much, Sarah. Very well read. Um, so, that's a passage, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. How good is your God? Uh, not theoretically, yours, personally. Is he good all the time, just wonderful and good? Is he good sometimes, but also worrisome and difficult and angry and fearful at other times, fear-inducing at other times? Is he just good to other people? 
but not you? How good is your God? Just a little question to sit with. I'm going to start at the end, at the most difficult part of the story. The son born to you will die. Otherwise, you will just spend the whole of my talk, during which I make some really good points, not listening to my really good points, and just be worrying about the son. Okay, so we're going to start there. What's this all about? Why on earth is this happening? The narrator tells us that this infant doesn't just die instantly, which would have, I guess, been some mercy, but he suffered before he died. Worse still, the narrator at least is convinced that it is God who has done all of this. The Lord, verse 15, struck the child with sickness. What on earth? Why would God do this? What are we to make of that? A good God, not just allowing suffering, but seemingly instigating it, is he punishing David? Just some small questions for a Sunday morning in July. What I want to do is zoom out for a little bit and address uh, this question, the question of suffering in sort of broad terms. And then I want to come back into the text, hopefully having given the appropriate kind of framing to the whole problem. So, zooming out. There are, broadly, four ways in which people have tried to resolve the issue of how a good God can allow suffering. Option number one, become an atheist. This is the simplest and easiest way towards resolution. Take the existence of God out of the picture and then the whole problem goes away. We're just left with the suffering, it is how it is, but we'll just get on with it. So. Would you like to become an atheist? I don't think this is in my job description, but would you? If you do, you will never have to think or worry about this question ever again. Not once, for the whole of your life. Imagine that. You may have some other questions, though. Like, what constitutes goodness? What happens when you die? How can you stop hurting people? What purpose does life have? Why does love seem so eternally important and actually eternal, if nothing is actually eternal? Do you have any real significance in life? Those sorts of things. But you will never, ever have to worry about how can a good God allow suffering because he doesn't exist. Now, because you're in church, I assume you're at least open to hearing the other three options before pressing the nuclear atheist button, right? Option two, ignore or isolate yourself off from the whole issue. Do not think about suffering. Pray for things like parking spaces, and hopefully you'll get parking spaces. Just never, ever watch the news. And everything can be fine in your little world. Many people live like this. They do tend to be quite privileged. You need to be quite privileged to live like this, but people do. The problem, of course, is that whilst everything may be fine for a while, there's always the chance that it won't stay like that. We're only ever one drunk driver or one burst blood vessel or one vindictive associate away from serious trauma, are we not? And then what are we going to do? What picture of God will we have been living with? He looks after your parking needs, great, but he doesn't bother doing much about heart attacks or cancer or abuse or the Holocaust. Option three. Option three is argument. Suffering, of course, does exist, but let's try and argue how it means something more bearable than it appears to mean. 
Now, the technical term for these arguments is called theodicies, and Christian history is kind of littered with them. They are all, and let me let you into a little secret before we start, they are all united by the fact that they do not work. However, there's always a little grain of truth in all of them. So I think it's important to have a look at these theodicies in turn to show why they don't work, but also to try and pull out that little grain of truth that is important. So if you don't mind, let us play family feuds with theodicies. Now, I think in America, family feuds, the, the wrong answer noise is something like this. <coughs> is that right? So in um, the UK, it's called family fortunes, and the wrong answer is this. <coughs> We're not better at lots of things, but I think we're better at that. I think uh, uh, is better than uh. Do you agree? When they're right, they're all the, always the same. Ping, right? Ping. That's the right answer sound. Is that right? Yeah, good. Anyway, we're going to go with because uh, uh, it's better. Okay? Argument number one. We suffer because God is refining us. Now, the grain of truth here is that there are elements of character that can only be developed by endurance. In our story, David, a few verses previously, has actually tried to cover up the existence of this son. He's tried to make it so that uh, Uriah sleeps with Bathsheba and then they can go, oh, look, it's your son. He's basically tried to get rid of the son. But... A few verses later, seeing the suffering of his own flesh and blood, he's filled with compassion, and he weeps, and he fasts, and he wears sackcloth, and he prays for his child, because he's changed. So it is true that in the midst of suffering, very good things can happen. Personally, I have to say that I have never felt closer to God in the worst time in my life. I've had a pretty privileged life. It's not been that bad. But uh, I was grieving my dad. We were sitting in the UK. I didn't have a job. We'd given up the job, given up the house, taking our kids out of school. We were in limbo, waiting for a visa that was never coming. And it might never come. And we were just sitting there. And I got very depressed. But I've never felt closer to God in that moment. I'm very grateful for him being close to me. But God no more wants us to suffer then he actually really, really likes typhoid. In fact, he loves it. He loves typhoid. As we often say at this church, if Jesus loves suffering so much, why did he spend so much of his time taking it away? And the reality is, often people are not refined by their suffering. People do suffer miles more than they can bear. People are humiliated and made into victims and made weaker, not stronger, by their suffering. Next. Option number two, we suffer because God has a plan in which our suffering is necessary. <coughs> now, the truth in this is that God cannot be confined by time and space. He sees everything in an instant, past, present, and future, all the time. And it is also true that there must be some sense of plan to the universe and the lives in it if it is indeed created and it didn't just randomly happen. We are not, all of us, without God-given calling and purpose. But the idea that we suffer because God has a plan in which this suffering is necessary fails because if love is love, 
It cannot manipulate or control, even for beneficial ends. Love is love because it sees the objects of love as ends in themselves, not means to some greater goal. God loves David in the present, in all his crap, as he currently is, in all his brokenness, unconditionally and fully. He doesn't love some future, perfect vision of David, which he is working him towards, but will only be possible after David has done some suffering, like the suffering of losing his son. Next, option number three. We suffer as part of a package deal that gives us free will. <clears throat> it does pass the love test. God made us free because he loves us, and he can't force us to love him, so he gives us the freedom to choose. But it fails spectacularly when it comes to considering suffering, which is not the result of human sin. Yes, we need to be given freedom to make choices, good and bad, but what about earthquakes and gangrene and typhoons? David's son was free, but he didn't do anything wrong, so why does he suffer? And after all, you do not threaten a child's freedom by pulling them out of the way of an onrushing truck, do you? Oh, look, my three-year-old, she's playing with a crocodile. How delightful. I mustn't rescue her, though, because that would threaten her freedom, and I love her too much to threaten her freedom. Next, option four. We suffer, but it doesn't matter, because it's only a momentary prelude to heaven. <coughs> now, of course, we do believe in the reality of heaven, but we also do believe in the sure and certain reality of this world and the suffering that is part of it. So the idea that God is going, oh, get over it, you're going to be going to heaven, it's absolutely fine is like God being the doctor who thinks it's okay to have a quick chat and a dawdle on the way to the emergency room. He does have the morphine, and he will use it, but not before a few hours of screaming. Now, of course, we do look to the end of all suffering, when there's no more pain, there's no heartache, there's no more tears, no injustice, no more sickness, and it will be glorious. But the idea that this in some way explains why some people have to go through hell on earth beforehand is just plain silly. Surely if David's son had to die, it would have been kinder for him to go straight away, not after a week of pain. Next and finally, argument number five, we suffer because the world is not as God intended it to be. This, I think, is what is going on here in our passage. God does not punish David. Verse 13, he forgives him. You're not going to die. But, verse 14, because of David's actions, his son will die. We're supposed to read this, I believe, not as a direct punitive result, but as an illustration of a bigger cosmic consequence. As Hannah mentioned last week, David's fall is deliberately paralleled to Adam and Eve's. The same vocabulary even is used. They went after independence. They went after more. They grasped at something that they didn't need. And David does likewise. The consequences are catastrophic. 
out of proportion, really, with the simple act of eating from a forbidden tree. And for David, the consequences are similarly catastrophic. Calamity and violence, verses 10 to 12, shame and destruction, will now mark his house forever. His son will get sick and die, because sin begets sin and suffering breeds more suffering. Since the very beginning, the world has not operated as it should. And the specific point I think is um, being tried to, to be drawn out here is one of bringing the original audience back down to earth. You see, David has been Israel's great hope. And really, up until Bathsheba, everything has gone well. It has all gone brilliantly. And the promise, or, or rather the request that Israel had, please give us a king, we can be like every other nation and it will be great for us, seems to actually be being true. But, says the narrator, but says God, did you really think this could last? David is just a man. And like anyone, he is susceptible to being very fleshly, very sinful, and doing terrible things. And sin's consequence, his and everyone else's, runs deep and it runs very long. Because sin begets sin, and suffering begets suffering. Our environment does not work as it should. There are tsunamis and earthquakes and malaria. Ask anyone who's lived with someone they love who has um, suffered from dementia, and they will tell you, this world is horrible. But also humankind doesn't quite work as it should. Last year, a 24-year-old um, college student named Gabriel Infante took a summer job laying fiber optic cable in uh, a state not a million miles away from here. Uh, temperatures reached 102 degrees as he was doing this, and he showed um, signs of extreme heat exhaustion. So his buddy said to the foreman, uh, he's suffering, can we please call an ambulance? I think he's in real trouble. The foreman said, no, I think he's on drugs, I'm going to call the police. When the ambulance did finally arrive, the foreman forced them to do a drugs test before they took him away. Infante's internal temperature at the time had risen to 109 degrees. And he passed away of heart failure caused by heat exhaustion in the emergency room a bit later. This year, that particular state, which I'm not going to name, has passed a law eliminating mandatory water breaks every four hours for construction workers. Can't have those anymore. Because humanity doesn't work as it should. But God's love is broadcast through all the troubles. God has not given up on his people. He forgives and he restores David which means God is not unmoved by suffering. He is not sitting there in his celestial armchair watching all the pain and going, oh, oh well. Chapter 11 ends with this. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. God is not unmoved by pain. He is distraught. He is angry even because people, Bathsheba and Uriah most obviously, have been hurt and abused and taken and murdered. And it is good, isn't it? Very good that God is not unmoved by this. Ding! 
I think we have a winner. We suffer because the world is not as God intended it to be. But of course, this doesn't actually solve the problem. Because even if this is how things are, and I think it is how things are, and I think it is what the Bible says things are like, how does the God of everything, who precedes everything, in whom there is nothing defective whatsoever, who creates out of nothing, produce something defective? Either you have to say that God does bring about suffering, as the narrator seems to say here, or if you want to say he's not directly responsible, you have to say God permits a universe that permits suffering. But essentially, we're really saying the same thing. The problem isn't answered, it's just relocated. It was Eve's fault, it was Adam's fault, it was the serpent's fault, it was the devil's fault, it was... But after a while, you've got to get back to the one who wasn't created, who has been for all time there. And before you know it, we are in long-winded, highly obscure, philosophical arguments about how evil can originate from good without good being compromised, none of which actually work, and all of which are absolutely no use whatsoever to my friend who's dying of cancer. Now, the important truth we can take from this argument is that creation is not the same as the creator. He sustains it. He creates it. He's in it but it is not the same as him. But are we any closer to an answer? I'm not sure we are, as I said at the beginning. The problem is, none of the arguments actually work. The only answer, back to the start, become an atheist. But of course, that's not going to work for us. If you know, we actually believe that God does exist. And we're convinced that Jesus is, all along, who he said he was. And that he died and that he rose again and that he's close and that he's here and you could experience him in the worship because he's real and he lives. And it won't do for us if we've met him and if we've had a personal connection with him and we've experienced his power and his forgiveness and his deep, deep love and his utter nearness to us. So what on earth are we going to do? How are we going to resolve it? Well, the short answer is we're not because we can't and this is option four. I think after a while, you just stop trying to resolve it. It becomes replaced by other questions. It's often one of the biggest sticking points for people actually coming to faith or people who are deconstructing their faith and going, wait a second, I never thought about this and now I'm thinking about it and it's really screwing with my mind. But I think for those of us who are able to kind of move beyond, mature in our faith, we move on without, of course, abolishing the deeply uncomfortable tension of it. And now and again, of course, we may be plunged back into it with violent force. Our child gets sick. Someone we love dies. We're particularly affected by a disaster we see on the news. But in general, I think we ask different questions because we know we're not going to resolve it. And even if we did, how useful would it be telling a dying friend as he gasps for his last breath the answer to the problem of pain. He doesn't need that. And what I think God does, rather than resolve the problem, is do something much, much more powerful. This is what he does. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is born in a feeding trough amongst some animals and some flies feasting on feces. 
He lives a life of no material wealth. He doesn't have a home or a shelter. He spends a large amount of his time with the equivalent of pedophiles, junkies, phone hackers, as well as the homeless and typhoon victims and AIDS patients. And he heals the sick and he comforts those who are mourning and he feeds the hungry and he gives sight to the blind. He speaks God's words of favor to those whose lives have been colored by, you're worthless, I can't stand you, you're disgusting. He doesn't turn away from us in our suffering, but actually he gets right into the middle of it. And ultimately, he's abused and mocked by the very people he came to save. He's given a sham trial. He's whipped and he's beaten and he hangs, suffocating to death on a tree. Don't tell me Jesus doesn't know all about suffering. When Jesus dies on the cross, he experiences the one thing that his perfection should never have experienced, the consequences of sin, all the suffering of the world. This is the eternal son of God, the perfect one. He shouldn't die, but he is And he does a shameful, lonely, and excruciating death. He dies because he chooses, he chose to get involved. He chooses to experience the consequences, not of his own sin, but of yours and mine. And everyone else's. He takes everything that is wrong with the world. All of it. The very people who have turned their back on him, spat at him, nailed him to the cross, the injustice of inequality, the injustice of child abuse, the injustice of cancer and tsunamis, and the inevitability of death. And he takes it all on himself, and it crushes him, but he destroys it forever. Because this final words are this, it is finished. And what he means is this is the beginning of the end. This is where the war has been won. The battles may still rage, but because of Jesus, from this moment on, the world is a different place. The king is on his throne in his kingdom, and his kingdom of life is rushing in. He's already here, and it's yet to fully come. Now, this is not the answer to the problem of suffering, but it's an infinitely more powerful response. You see, to return to the passage, it can be tempting to let the Bible blur into generalized sort of pronouncements fuzzy cosmic opinions and religious indignation, or in our case, endless attempts to solve impossible questions. In all these cases, what we are doing is we are distancing ourselves from the story. We observe it from the sidelines, commenting on it. And this, in fact, is exactly what David does at the start of this story. Nathan has drawn him in with a wonderfully little crafted little sermon about greed and abuse of power and injustice, and David rages from the bleachers, righteous indignation being poured down on the players. Verse 5, he burned with anger against the man. Nathan has barely finished the story, and David is pronouncing the death penalty right from the top of his newly corralled high horse. But stirring up religious judgment is not what this story is about. In the same way that this story isn't about the problem of suffering. I don't think actually the Bible is ever about those sorts of things. You see, God's word, however it begins and however long it takes to get there, always ends up as a direct and personal affront. It's not about somebody else. It's not about something else. It's about you. And it's about me. Nathan sucks David in, 
And then he hits him with the killer line. You are the man. Four words. In the vernacular of our time, stuff just got real. The Bible is never a commentary on ideas or culture or conditions. It's always about actual persons with actual trouble, actual sin, who you are and what you've done, who I am and what I've done. Now, we can, of course, stay on the sidelines with our philosophical musings or our judgments about David, but just know that the real game is happening in the middle. And it can be brutal and confrontational and disturbing. But it's also where all the life is and all the change and all the redemption and all the joy and all the good because it's where Jesus is, right in the middle. You are the man, says Nathan. And David knows it and everything changes. Because in an instant, those four words bring him back into the game. He stops hiding behind the cover of moral superiority. And now, having been addressed personally, he responds personally. How difficult it is to actually respond personally. I have sinned against the Lord. Five words this time, which tell a gruesome story. But five words which open up a whole world of hope. He's abandoned the pretensions of power, and he sees who he is before his God, a person in trouble. He is in trouble. You are the man. You are the woman. I am. We all are. Often I've found people can grow up with very um, unhelpful views of confession. Those outside the church will often criticize the idea of sort of confessing as being some sort of groveling uh, by um, weak people who have been taught to hate themselves and to sort of beat themselves up, to despise everything about themselves. But for anyone who's played the game for a bit, I think we think and we recognize that there is always difficult and it always requires humility. And as I've often said before, who woke up this morning thinking, I hope I get a chance to be humble. Today, I really want to be able to be in a position where I say, I got it wrong and I'm sorry. I can't wait for that. None of us want that. It always requires humility. But for those of us who've been playing the game for a while, you'll know that actually confession, it's something quite wonderful and different. David's sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, is full of hope. Because it's full of God. It's the Lord. That's who I need. I've lost him. I didn't even know I did, but I've lost him. And I've got to get him back. He's right in the thick of it. Recognizing his need for change, for forgiveness, and meeting with the God who changes always and who forgives always. So, Let's make it personal. Can you imagine Nathan telling you a story? It's good to have Nathans in our lives. And notice that David, despite all his self-importance, all his pride, 
has still got Nathan around. He's still there. Surely you'd get rid of Nathan. But to his credit, he's there. And when the time is right, Nathan tells him a story. Have you got Nathans in your life? Someone who can be kind and wise. And know not just to launch in with everything that's wrong with you. But instead tell you a story. But one who's also strong and courageous enough not to neglect their godly care of you and speak some difficult things to you. Try and find one. But in the meantime, you actually already have the perfect one. The Spirit of God will put his finger on things if you let him. Just let him. He's probably been doing it throughout this service. You don't need to go digging around for anything. It'll be right there in the forefront of your mind. When you know, you know, right? To end, there's this interesting parallel between David and Nathan, and then a thousand years later, Jesus before Pilate. Nathan says of David, you are the man. Pilate says to Jesus in John's Gospel, here is the man. The pronouncements are similar in that they are both about persons because the Christian faith is always about people, who David actually is, and by extension, who we actually are, who you actually are, who I actually am, and who Jesus actually is, a real person beckoning you to meet him personally. But the stories differ in that whilst Nathan's You Are the Man confronts us with ourselves, Pilate's Here is the Man confronts us with the God who got involved, who took flesh and moved into your life and my life and the life of a world in desperate need. You see, the place of sin, coming to that realization of we've lost God, we've gone it, gone on our own is not the place of accusation or condemnation. It's the place of salvation. The story shows us David. And it shows us as David, broken but not yet destroyed. But it invites us as David to Jesus. Who knew this Jesus could be that close, that kind, that inviting? Who knew he had this much power to change us and forgive us? So here's the challenge. Wallow around in the shame, in the pride, in that I don't really need him. Do that or this. As David does, in an instant, I'm leaving all the shame and pride. I am being completely open about what's actually going on and I am coming back to the thing I've lost that means more than anything else in the world. Now, the thing about um, church is often people are fixated about the outward workings of where our heart is at. Is this a sin? Is that a sin? Is this a sin? Do I need to say sorry for this, for this, for this, for this? It's not about that. It's about the heart. All of those are just symptoms. Have you lost God? 
he's right there in the middle of it saying, here I am, with open arms, saying, come back. I love you too much to let you remain where you are. So, should we stand?